W-O-W-D-L-P, Tacoma Park. Listeners, you are tuned into WOWD 94.3 FM, and this is Interfaith-ish. I am your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday, one hour at a time, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listeners, this week we are talking about what it means to be orthodox in both the context of Christianity and Judaism. And I'm happy to be joined in the studio this morning by Father Viktor Potapov, rector of the Russian Orthodox Cathedral of St. John the Baptist. Good morning, Father Viktor. And also with us this morning is Rabbi Uri Topolsky, the spiritual leader of Kehilat Pardes, the Rock Creek Synagogue. Good morning to you, Rabbi Uri. Morning, Jack. Dear listeners, this very morning we are having an opportunity to overcome obfuscation and orient ourselves to the origins of the Orthodox tradition. So without further delay, it's time to get into some interfaith-ish. So gentlemen, there is a uh, trope, an old trope, that's perhaps carried over from the previous generation of interfaith engagement, that uh, interfaith work is... Uh, simply a a group of bearded men that are sitting around talking to each other, and typically we resist falling into that stereotype. But um, <laughs> this morning, I'm afraid the three of us are just walking into a cliche pretty hard there. So uh, I want to start off with a subject that usually isn't discussed in these gatherings. Start off with something a, a little bit on a lighter note, and talk about let's talk about grooming this morning. You guys have have some some wonderful, beautiful beards here that I'm I'm just completely jealous of. Father Victor, you in particular, what's what's your hair care routine for this gorgeous beard that you've cultivated? <laughs> I just grow it and uh, occasionally trim it. So it doesn't get out of hand. But in the Orthodox Church, uh, most priests wear beards. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I know that fragrances are a big part of the, the Orthodox uh, tradition and experience in the church. So do you have a particular scented oil that you like that you splash on there? No, I don't, I don't, I don't use uh, uh, perfume or cologne, uh, but we use plenty of that in church in the form of incense. Right, right. Uh, do you feel like you come home after after service and, and, you, uh, and yes, you've got a nice... Actually, most of the time when I come home, I smell of borscht <laughs> because uh, we have uh, a luncheon after uh, services uh-huh. and borscht is the big thing in the Russian church. Right, right. Okay, all right. Well, you know, I that's... suspect in the Jewish community Right, well. yeah, so I was going to say, do you, have, uh, you put a little borscht there to uh, get a little Shabbos shine on, on your beard? Uh, no, but I am jealous of the father's beard here. It uh, grows much, much longer than mine. <laughs> my my problem is that uh, if I let my beard grow out, it would be an afro. I'd just be a big round puff here. Um, so I have to keep it uh, trimmed short. Otherwise, uh, it ends up, you know, in the way of lots of things. Have you have you been rocking your your beard there for for a long time since you were? in college or anything? Oh, my wife won't let me shave. There you she's, go. She's, See, she's never seen me without exactly, it. Exactly, so. exactly. I have the same I have the same problem. Whenever I, I shave, usually it's 
when I'm on my own or in the middle of the night or something, I get some sort of a brainstorm that I, I need to, to shave my beard off and, and my, my wife and daughter can't have it. They have a heart attack. Um, do you, so, and your kids, they, they wouldn't recognize you without a beard at this point, I think. They might recognize me, but uh, it would be different. Yeah, yeah. So what about in the in the Orthodox tradition? You were talking about a lot of a lot of the uh, the priests are cultivating these beards. Do you feel like it's a it's a sign of of respect and reverence? The older guys, I've seen some of these beards are pretty intense. Yeah, that's uh, I think they're very unwieldy and not very practical. But uh, yeah, the modern priests they they all have beards and do different lengths. But uh, in some of the uh, more modern Orthodox churches here in America, a lot of priests do just you know, they 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 shave and uh, they have or they have just stubby beard uh, stubby beards. Uh -huh. They don't have long hair like uh -huh. I do. Yeah, uh, but it's uh, basically a tradition where by uh, priest is not really supposed to groom himself too much. They mm. don't take care of his uh, outer appearance that that much. But uh, uh, but you have to in contemporary right. life because uh, otherwise people will be scared of you. <laughs> <laughs> so the 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 older heads, it's sort of a status thing. They're uh, yeah, I guess they've yeah, got I guess, yeah. 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 yeah, it's there's there's no religious teaching about beards <laughs> per se. It's it's not one of the facets of our belief. Right. It's just that we uh, we we believe that well, Christ had long hair and a beard, and we sort of emulate his example. To there a you go. Degree. It's good enough for him, mm -hmm. right? And how about would you would your would your congregants mm -hmm. go for a clean shave and rub you, or do they need somebody who's you know sitting there stroking? I tell people that if they shave, they're hiding their true face. Yes. So we have to let our true selves out more <laughs> more often. God gave us beards for a reason. Amen. And uh, I also, I mean, in our tradition, there is a lot that's discussed. Uh, the zaken, the beard, is mm. symbolic of many things, um, mostly wisdom. Mm. So you know, I'm not trying to pretend to be wiser than I am, but um, you know, there is a notion, certainly in the Bible, of not shaving the corners of your face. So mm -hmm. how we interpret that is interesting, but... Um, there is a certain attachment to those teachings and a sense of letting it grow, letting your wisdom grow, and being a growing person, perhaps. So I like that. all of these ideas tied together. Plus, the ideas, I think, they tend to flow as you're as you're. Well, it's that, much easier to teach there. and stroke your yeah, chin it, if you have a beard. Right, right, right. It looks more impressive anyway. <laughs> all right, so we're uh, we're already establishing some some interfaith common ground here, right under our noses. Uh, this morning, dear and listeners, chins. and gents, <laughs> if you're just joining us, this is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We're talking this morning with Father Viktor Potapov, rector of the Russian Orthodox Cathedral of St. John the Baptist, and Rabbi Uri Tobolowsky, the spiritual leader at Kailat Pardes. Um, so I want to get back to some of the basics um, for a minute and understand from each of you, what, is, what does it mean when we say orthodox. So Father Victor, um, most people who are listening, they may be familiar when they're thinking about Christians, about Catholics and Protestants, but how does the Orthodox Church fit in? What are, what are the things that distinguish it? Well, uh, orthodoxia is a Greek word which means uh, uh, true believing or correct believing, uh, meaning that uh, we uh, hold fast to the traditions of the first millennium church, the undivided church, before in, in 1054 the Christendom separated, the Western Christendom and the Eastern, 
And uh, the Orthodox Church is made up of the uh, Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Christianity, uh, which uh, flourished in Byzantium, in Constantinople, uh, was spread to the Balkans, to Russia, uh, Africa, the Church of Alexandria, the Church of Jerusalem. So for us, uh, our faith was developed during the seven ecumenical councils with, which met during the first millennium of Christianity. And uh, we still profess that faith that was handed down to us by the Holy Fathers mm. of the seven ecumenical uh, churches. In Cat the Catholic West, uh, they, they consider each, uh, each Vatican Council to be an ecumenical council, although the Orthodox don't participate. And they have continued to develop dogmas, teachings, uh, we believe that all of our dogmas and teachings were developed in the first thousand years. Mm. So we hold fast to that. That's, mm. so, so for us, meaning to be orthodox means to be right-believing, uh, keeping the teachings of, of the fathers and the saints of the first uh, uh, unri original undivided church. Mm -hmm. And your church is a Russian Orthodox church. So what is the history of the church in Russia specifically? Well, uh, the Orthodox Church is made up of 15 uh, autocephalous or self-independent, self-governing churches. Um, and the Russian Church is the largest of all the Orthodox Churches. It claims 150 uh, 50 million uh, adherents. Um, our Russia was baptized, made Christian in 988. Mm by Byzantine missionaries, St. Uh, uh, Vladimir, who was the prince of uh, Kiev. Um, he baptized his people. Uh, so uh, Russian Orthodoxy has uh, been in existence for 1,030-some years. Um, it, uh, the Russian church was very uh, influential in the uh, establishment of the Russian state. Uh, and the establishment of the Russia, Russian Empire. Um, and it has gone through diff different crises over the, over the centuries. And, of course, the greatest crisis of all was 1917 during the revolution mm. when um, uh, the Bolsheviks took, took over the, uh, the communists uh, who were militantly atheistic. Uh, to the point, basically, they were, they were people who declared war on God, although they didn't believe in God, but they started to destroy churches. Uh, they they separated the church from state, obviously, uh, schools from the church. Uh, they closed them down. They um, uh, jailed and executed tens of thousands of priests and, and, and lay, lay, laymen. Um, and uh, this continued for 70 years under the communists uh, with different degrees of um, of, of, of ferocity, um, and this all changed when uh, Gorbachev took power in the 1980s, uh, and he declared glasnost and perestroika. The church was given more freedom then, and then in 1991 when the uh, putsch took place, and when uh, the, the uh, Gorbachev was overthrown by Yeltsin, the church has now enjoyed unparalleled freedom. Mm and development. Mm -hmm. And here in the U.S., there's a sizable uh, Russian Orthodox community? 
There used to be. Um, my, the church I belong to is the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia. We broke relations with the church in Moscow in 1927 for political administrative reasons mm. because the church there was taken over by the communists and we did not want to be influenced in any way by Soviet agents and all that. And our community was very politicized. They were very anti-communists. And uh, when the uh, events took, took place in Russia in 1991, when Gorbachev lost power and Yeltsin became president of the Russian Federation, uh, according to our bylaws, we should have, and, and communist, communism uh, was, was uh, done with, uh, we were, according to our bylaws, we were to reunite with the church in Russia. But it took 16 more years for us to overcome the psych psychological difficulty or of coming to terms with the fact that these people have really changed. Mm. We thought the communists might come back. Mm. But in 2007, thank God, we reunited. Mm. We, we still uh, maintain a very autonomous existence. We take care of all of our internal business. Only difference is now we commemorate the, the Patriarch of Moscow as the head of the church. Okay. Interesting. Rabbi Uri, turning to you, you yeah. identify as modern Orthodox. Um, so we've got two ideas to unpack in, 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 this, uh, in this concept. First, what does Orthodox mean in the context of Judaism? And when did uh, Jews start identifying as Orthodox or, or not? Well, no politics in our community whatsoever. So. <laughs> Um, but that was really interesting, Father, just to hear some of that history and um, the ebb and flows over time of the church and, uh, and the reunification in some ways. Um, you know, the I guess in some ways very similar that um, there is always division and um, difference of interpretation. And in the Orthodox community would claim to be holding on to a rabbinic Judaism, um, which is very ancient. Um, going back to the period of the rabbis in the first, second, third century, um, and the development of Judaism, uh, what we call rabbinic Judaism, um, and the rabbinic interpretation of our Torah. Um, but, uh, you know, in the modern period, um, there are liberal streams of Judaism, and really that came to define more what orthodoxy mm. is, um, uh, and uh, as as different streams sort of broke away, um, arguing over uh, wanting more of the vernacular uh, in services, uh, the the sermon to be um, in the vernacular, or adding certain music or certain other elements that uh, were changing the tradition. Sort of orthodoxy um, became uh, the word to capture what traditional Judaism um, was. And of course, you know, there were always different breaks throughout the years, and um, not everybody was orthodox, uh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, but um, then you had uh, a movement in, in uh, what is known as modern orthodoxy, which was uh, probably to embrace a couple of uh, Western values um, that were emerging, but mostly... Um, the embrace of university education. Mm. Um, As opposed to, be, to just going to yeshiva. To yeshiva. Mm -hmm. um, so you had a, sort of a flagship institution of modern orthodoxy was Yeshiva University, um, which was very controversial for many in the orthodox world. The, uh, to allow for uh, college education and uh, mainstreaming into the workforce and, and that sort of thing. Mm. So um, modern orthodoxy has taken on different meaning a little bit even now um, as we come into the 21st century, but 
uh, certainly that was the, the root of it. Mm-hmm. Great. If you're just joining us, this is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We've been talking this morning with Rabbi Uri Tobolowski, the spiritual leader of Keilat Pardes, and Father Viktor Potapov, the rector of the Russian Orthodox Cathedral of St. John the Baptist. So, um, Father Victor, as you mentioned, there there are these different, um, you said 15, 15 groups within the Orthodox uh, Church, independent of one another, if I understand. Yes. Um, so, so some of them that people might be familiar with, you know, Russian, Egyptian, uh, Ethiopian, Greek. Um, so are these different church communities, are they formally connected, either on a local or, as you're saying, sort of a, a global hierarchy or... You know, do you talk regularly with the leadership of some of these other yes, communities? Yes, well, each each uh, of these churches has uh, institutions, like sort of like a state department, if you will, mm. where the uh, top bishop uh, is in communication with the heads of the other Orthodox churches. Sometimes when there are very important issues, uh, they get together in council. For us in the Orthodox Church, council is very important. We don't have a pope. Uh, we we uh, feel that the church cannot be centralized. We all the fifteen Orthodox churches uh, share the same faith. They share the same liturgy, although the liturgy is in different languages, because from the very outset of the Orthodox Church, uh, uh, we were able to serve in the local languages. We didn't have the Latin language as a centralized uh, language as as the Roman Catholic Church. There's a autocephalous church here in America. It's called the Orthodox Church in America. Mm-hmm. It's made up of uh, English-speaking folks, mostly converts. And uh, then there are churches that are under the wing of their mother churches, like, for example, the church I belong to is part of the Russian Orthodox Church. But the Russian, my, my cathedral, for example, it, although it's called Russian Orthodox, we, we have uh, services in in the Russian language, Church Slavonic language, which, which is the liturgical language of the Russian Church, and then we have parallel services in English, because uh, uh, I would say about sixty percent of my uh, parishioners are Russian or Russian extract. Every everyone else is are different nationalities. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of converts. Yeah, I was going to ask. So so how is it that people come? to um, the Orthodox tradition, typically, if they're not growing up in it? Well, obviously, people come for different reasons, but I think one of the uh, most important uh, considerations is uh, the conservatism of uh, the Orthodox Church, the the traditionalism of it, uh, the beauty of the uh, worship. We have very beautiful... uh, The liturgy we use was was authored in the 4th century Mm. by St. John of Chrysostom of Patriarch of Constantinople. It's the liturgy we, we continue to use on Sundays and weekdays. And music is a big the part as well, the choral singing, no? Choral singing, we, it's all a cappella. We, mm. we don't have uh, in, instruments, guitars, or piano, because the, our belief is that the human voice is the perfect instrument. Mm. And we try to, everything we do, we try to bring to God in a natural way. Mm-hmm. We use beeswax candles, for example. Mm. Uh, we use the natural incense. We use music, which which flows from 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 the uh, from the from the innards, if mm-hmm. you will. A big sensory experience. Then, yes, I it is. It is, and uh, I think that that draws a lot of people. And of course, the teachings, uh, which have not changed for a thousand years. Mm. 
And are there then a lot of uh, young uh, Americans, whether converts or yes, people yes, who are growing yes, up yes. in the community? As a matter of fact, uh, we we've had uh, we we've spawned uh, two smaller missions. We have a mission in Beltsville, uh, where the, another mission is opening in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, in March, uh, and another one in Gainesville, Virginia. Okay, because our parishioners live all over. And for you know, this is a good thing because, uh, it, the, like like your synagogue, it's within a mile radius. But for our people, at least they they have to drive. They can drive ten miles instead of fifty miles <laughs> to get to church. Right, right. So, Rabbi Uri, what about what about you? You're um, you're leading a community that's got a lot of young families in it. Am I right? Mm -hmm. In this area, there are a number of Orthodox communities, and when people come to the DC region. Um, except in times of shutdown, there's lots of flow always, and people are coming here for jobs and the economy. Um, you know, so Orthodox Jews that are uh, coming from that perspective end up finding themselves in one of a very small number of communities here and living within very close proximity of their synagogue. Mm. Um, and ultimately what that happens is it drives up uh, uh, home prices, it, <laughs> it uh, densely populates the neighborhood, and then you end up only being able to find a house uh, quite far from the synagogue, um, uh, or the, the communities become very large. And um, so there was a, a vision to create a new community um, and uh, create an opportunity for folks to come and uh, craft their own uh, kind of synagogue, um, albeit in the Orthodox tradition. And um, and rooted at its heart is a, a modern Orthodox day school that serves the region. Mm. Um, so people are are moving to our neighborhood, um, young families buying their first home um, in many cases, along with singles and uh, older adults as well, um, retirees, and moving into a neighborhood where uh, you have the chance to make a difference in a community mm. and shape what it looks like and not be one of 400 families, but be one of 60 families. Mm -hmm. and. Um, and that community is growing, um, you know, in the last uh, three or four years. So it's exciting to be a part of a place where you get to shape the culture and the attitudes. Um, if not uh, the way Shabbat is practiced, it's very similar in Kashrut and Kosher law. But um, but it, it's special to be a, a part of a of a growing you know, community in that way. And tell us a little bit about about your your own journey. Do you do you feel like you've always had the same perspective on on your tradition, or were there times at which you either dialed up or down your your approach, your level of um, observance? So I'm actually a convert. Um, I was converted as a child, mm. so it's a little bit different. I didn't convert as an adult, but um, my mom was raised in the um, Irish Catholic tradition. Oh, interesting. Um, her father, uh, Lebanese, Maronite Catholic, um, and uh, she moved away from the church at a, um, in her college years, um, but was a very religious woman. Um, the church instilled with her a real sense of God in her life. And she was seeking that in other places um, and uh, bumped into the Jewish community and started to learn, met my father eventually who was Jewish, although not uh, terribly practicing. Mm. Um, and they began a long journey, um, which took many years, where they wanted to be rooted in the Orthodox community. Mm. What, uh, what uh, community, what type of community did they meet in? 
Um, so they met in Phoenix, Arizona, um, spent time in Atlanta, and then up in the Boston area. Um, but it wasn't an Orthodox Jewish community, the context in which they were meeting? Uh, no. no. Summer camp. Summer camp. Well, no, all right. <laughs> There's a certain level of tradition there in the, yeah. <laughs> the Jewish community. As but well. uh, I, you know, I have fond memories being raised by parents who are in an Orthodox community, mm-hmm. um, so in that structure, um, but learning it for the first time. Mm. So they're studying text that I'm studying as a first grader um, for the first time. They're encountering Hebrew as I'm encountering it. They're encountering prayer and uh, kosher and Shabbat and much in the same way I am as a child. And I I, I can't exactly put a finger on it, but it feels to me that that had a very profound impact on uh, it feeling fresh and alive and special and new. and uh, in that way, something special that um, I held on to. My earliest memory, actually, and sometimes I think I forged it out of stories, but <laughs> the earliest memory that I carry is as a two-and-a-half-year-old child in the arms of my father um, in a mikvah, in a ritual bath, um, bare-chested he was in, in, a, in a bathing suit, uh, in this large pool of water that was mm. not much larger than this radio lab here, right? <laughs> Maybe a six foot, four foot square, mm-hmm. uh, with little blue tiles all around, and mm-hmm. three men in front of us. One who was short and somewhat bald, um, and who was the court to oversee the conversion. Um, so I was converted as a child along with my mother, oh. and uh, grew up somewhat with that identity. Um, I connect a lot with converts to Judaism, also mm-hmm. in our area. I think as a result. Um, I feel very moved and inspired by their journey, and um, and you know that's been a big part of, of my own identity. Grew up always in uh, the Jewish day school system. Went to yeshiva in Israel afterwards, and mm. um, and then went to rabbinical school. But um, so I, I've remained, I think, most of my life in the Orthodox community. But there's there's a big spectrum there, and a lot of diversity within the Orthodox community spiritually. Um, in terms of certain modern values, etc. So I've definitely moved in different ways um, within the Orthodox community as well. Mm-hmm. And so this this is very interesting. Your your unique perspective then um, coming to Judaism, perhaps you know not taking it for granted because it's it's something that, as you said, you experienced it fresh along with with your parents. Do you feel like that um, makes Interfaith engagement something that is uh, is is something that you're op- more open to. Do you feel like it's something that that the community as a whole uh, enjoys participating in, or does it tend to be a more inward-looking community looking after their own affairs? I think there's a certain paradox here as an Orthodox Jew, um, but uh, but believing that there is truth in lots of places, um, not just within my Orthodoxy. Um, and maybe that has to do with growing up in a in a large, beautiful family. I have twenty six first cousins that wow. are bleeding heart Irish Notre Dame football fans, you know. So, um, you know, it's spending a lot of time with them and with the family. Um, being very frustrated to hear certain teachers as a kid, certain rabbis making demeaning comments about other religions. Um, and uh, and I think as it is often in our community, it's very insular. So uh, you're naturally not as engaged with the larger community. Um, you you are insular because of the food that you eat and you don't eat out. You um, you're insular because of Shabbat, and uh, these are all beautiful things, mm. but they isolate us from the larger world in some ways. 
um, and because of other values as well. And as a result, when you don't know, you fear, or you don't know and you don't like. Um, and uh, I think I was exposed perhaps a little bit more um, and have always felt it important to maintain those relationships um, and to learn more about my colleagues uh, throughout the community. So Great. Father Victor, what about you? The Orthodox community, does it tend to be outward looking in terms of uh, opportunities for interfaith engagement? Well, it's, uh, certain communities do. Uh, others, uh, like for the Russian church, we have, we've had so many issues with uh, the political situation in the Soviet Union. We've taken in a lot of emigres into our community. Mm. Uh, we've helped a lot of emigres adapt to this country. And that has made us very, very busy. Um, so, I mean, as, as far as ecumenical outreach, if that's what you're, you're meaning, yes. uh, uh, we don't deal too much in that because uh, I'm just overwhelmed with my, with my parish day-to-day uh, -day operations. Uh, we have a, a monthly uh, association, a monthly meeting of the Orthodox Clergy Association here in Washington, D.C., which is made up of about 35 parishes. We meet, we, we discuss uh, the contemporary uh, religious scene in in this country and what the Orthodox can do uh, to to make its voice uh, heard. Uh, we have spokesmen who, who deal with that. I don't deal with that specifically, because I have about 500 families in mm. my in my my parish, and believe me, I just don't have the time mm. to. Mm -hmm. But as far as outreach is concerned, well, I for th for 30 years I worked for the Voice of America. I did right. a religious broadcast which was um, beamed to the Soviet Union via shortwave. Most people don't know what shortwave <laughs> is anymore. <laughs> but uh, I reached millions of people. Uh, I, I, in the program, I talked about uh, various uh, religious life in this country, uh, what uh, people are doing, how religious uh, communities are developing, and teaching people in the Soviet Union what it means to live in a free country uh, where religion truly is separated from 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 the from the government, uh, unfortunately that wasn't the case for the Soviet Union because mm. the, the church was totally subjugated by by the government. So it was a in in that sense I I, I guess I dealt with outreach for thirty years, but not not necessarily mm. to this country because uh, by by law for some reason the broadcast that we were doing. Uh, outside the country were not allowed to be broadcast here in this country. Hmm. Because of the rules of the VOA, you're saying, yeah, Voice of yeah, America. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. It's too bad because uh, I think the more Americans uh, would have known right. about how their tax dollars are being spent, and effectively, by the way, yeah. because radio was a very powerful tool. Right. It still and, is. Right. Well, here we are. Here we and, are. Yeah, exactly. This is Interfaith-ish, our bi-weekly show on WOWD 94.3 FM, where we discuss the common ground and differences between our traditions. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and I'm joined this morning by my guest, Father Viktor Potapov, the rector of the Russian Orthodox Cathedral of St. John the Baptist, and Rabbi Uri Topolowsky, the spiritual leader of Keilat Pardes. In the first half of our program, we talked about some of the distinctions that make up orthodoxy in both the context of Christianity and Judaism. And now it's time to discuss some more similarities and differences that each of my dear guests are curious about. 
anything that they've heard from each other talking about their tradition or experience that they'd like to follow up on, anything that they were familiar with coming in today that they want to understand better. On our show, we seek to model constructive and respectful dialogue in the spirit of learning, while at the same time not being afraid to roll up our sleeves and get into some interfaith-ish. So with that, I'll turn it over to you, gentlemen. Well, I'll just jump in here. I'm uh, in a in a radio studio, so it's exciting for me. And music is a big part of my life. Um, my wife is a terrific musician and sings beautifully. And um, I taught myself how to play guitar. And but uh, as an Orthodox uh, Jew, um, one of the places where we most gather in synagogue is on Shabbat. And on our Sabbath, uh, we don't have any musical instruments. Um, and uh, sometimes I feel it's such a loss. Uh, I, I want to pull out my guitar and accent the service. And there are creative ways that some are trying to uh, bring musical instruments to the edges of Shabbat, to, to the beginning or the end, without it being on the day itself. But uh, some of those things are edgy in and of itself. Um, so sometimes I struggle with uh, wanting more music and feeling like it would really lift our service, and sometimes, you know, okay, and, and like the distinction. But you, uh, Father, said something really beautiful before. I just would love to hear more about about uh, the, the notion that our, our voice is the perfect instrument and that there is no musical instruments in, in your services. So I'd just love to hear more about that. Well, I think in the Eastern Orthodox Church, I'm talking about all 15 uh, churches that make up the family of uh, Orthodox churches. From the very onset, we never used instruments, and there was a, a very developed uh, chanting system, um, which was developed in Byzantium. For example, in uh, the, the great cathedral Hagia Sophia, which is now a huge mosque, uh, when the emissaries of uh, Prince Vladimir from Kiev came, to choose which religion he would convert his people to, uh, the emissaries wrote back to him that when they they made their impressions of the different religions, the Catholic, uh, the Jewish, and then when they came into this great cathedral, there were like a thousand voices singing, and the incense was rising, and uh, hundreds of priests were serving, and there were tens of thousands of people in church. They said, they wrote back and said they uh, could not, uh, they, they had the impression that they were in heaven instead of on earth. Mm. The, the chanting was so beautiful and so overpowering. And I think uh, since the Byzantine Empire, uh, each Orthodox Church has developed its own ch system of chanting. In the Russian Church, um, we're closer to Europe in our culture, and uh, composers, famous composers like Rachmaninoff, uh, Tchaikovsky, uh, wrote music for the church. They did made, made composed their own liturgies, their own vesper services, and um, it's it, we have very harmonic singing and, and the choral. The uh, culture in, in our church is very well developed. Mm. Um, so we never used instruments. Uh, when the Greeks, early Greek emigres came to America, they wanted very much to blend into the culture. They wanted to become American as soon as possible. Some of them introduced organ music into, the, into their uh, liturgy. 
But for some reason, we, f- we find that uh, musical instruments, sometimes uh, the sound of the musical instruments uh, dis- distract from the, from the words being sung. Hmm. Uh, so we, I, we have no plans to, to ever use musical instruments in, in the church, and I guess that will never really happen. So we will stick with the choral uh, tradition. Is there a practice of, of uh, playing instruments just for fun outside of oh, the church? Oh, yes, yeah. yes, of course. So you know, the, it's we, seen as a value in some way, but not in... Oh, no, definitely. Yeah. We, we have concerts after the, after the church services next door in our church hall, and uh, uh, we have balalaika music <laughs> and uh, guitar music, and we sing folk songs, and uh, there's, there are even religious songs. They're, they're not used in church, but the religious songs uh, played with the guitar. So no, that's that's very much appreciated, and we have a our parish has a folk dance group, and uh, we believe me appreciate instrumental music very very much, mm. but not in church. Well, I appreciate that. No, no, Thank you. No. But it's interesting that uh, uh, the Orthodox congregation that that you had is the modern. Orthodox uh, uh, Judaism. Now there are many strains of Judaism, uh, but modern Orthodox. What? How does that distinguish itself from simple, plain Orthodox mm. Judaism? Um, great question. I think it's still being defined in some places. Um, but uh, the type of modern Orthodoxy that I grew up in um, stood on a several core values. One was. Um, its relationship to the non-Jewish community, um, recognizing the beauty and value of those relationships, um, and uh, as well as uh, the non-Orthodox Jewish community. Um, so those are two pieces that sort of pushed the modern Orthodox community beyond the walls of just Orthodox Jews. Um, those are two very important values, and actually today, um, you know, part of the pushback in the modern Orthodox community um, is that some of its flagship institutions have been move, moving away from those values, um, moving more and more conservative, uh, more and more insular, and uh, less interested in, in the values that uh, we might glean from other communities and other faiths. Um, but a, a couple other core platform issues were, um, for the modern Orthodox community, thinking about university education, um, the idea of Torah umada, of recognizing the value of both science and and other uh, you know core secular ideas and and teachings, um, and balancing that with our religious values. Um, so not being afraid of university education per se, um, albeit you know grounded in in uh, the Orthodox community, um, and also the role of women um, and the place of women in our community um, in leadership roles. Uh, playing a role in the development of, of Jewish law and thinking about um, our Jewish community and values. Um, so, you know, that, that has also been uh, another important piece. And maybe the fifth and uh, major element is um, the state of Israel. Um, you know, it's been complicated for many Jews how to relate to the birth of the modern state of Israel um, in our time. And uh, many in our community understand that to be sort of a religious expression of God's presence in the world um, and connect ourselves to Israel in that way. So those are the different issues that I think define modern orthodoxy and are still being, you know, teased out in different ways. Mm -hmm.
It's interesting that uh, before this uh, broadcast we were speaking and it turns out that uh, we both met our wives in Jerusalem. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just in, in the Holy Land. Which is Although it's funny, I met, I met my wife playing guitar. Oh. <laughs> actually, well, actually, my wife had a guitar with her too. Oh, all right, good. <laughs> yeah, so. I tried to offer my guitar to yeah. my wife when we first met at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, we had been playing throughout the night. It was the day after Tisha B'Av, our national day of mourning. Um, that year was pushed off a day, and everyone gathered at the Western Wall uh, with shofarot and horns and instruments and drums, and it's like musical celebration all through the night. And around three in the morning or so, we were sitting in a circle in the back of the plaza playing guitar. I had broken half the strings on my guitar, oh, but I had this inkling that she knew how to play, so I, you know, I tried to... That's offer a her the guitar. Move there, player. Yeah, you got she rejected me. Although she tells me, "Listen, it was only because the uh, the guitar was mostly broken at that point." Um, but it was the beginning of a beautiful relationship. So your last name sounds very Eastern European. Yeah, yeah. So it's c complicated to to find its source. Um, you know, part of my family traces itself back to Vilna, uh -huh. um, but um, but also, you know, for many generations in America on the other side too. So, uh, topol, I, I guess, is uh, some kind of oak tree and, and topol, yes, yeah, exactly, right. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't hundred percent know the origins uh, yeah. in that way. Yeah, it's yeah, interesting. Yeah, well, you know, <clears throat> now modern Orthodox uh, congregations. Uh, do they accept women rabbis? So this is, um, you know, one of the newest areas that's happening now is that uh, there are women rabbis being ordained in the Orthodox community. There's no uh, technical um, prohibition that would keep women from that place. Uh, it's just not has has not been the tradition to do so, um, and so there's been a lot of pushback. Um, but in uh, in the modern Orthodox communities in this area, there are women rabbis serving, um, sometimes with different titles, which take the edge off it for a community that's newly embracing the idea, like uh, a rabbanit um, or maharat, so different uh, titles for women serving. But um, there is a, a, a strong feeling in our community that... Um, that we need women uh, to be in roles of spiritual leadership, that our communities need it. Uh, they need women role models. Um, they need women to uh, talk to about a variety of different pastoral, spiritual, and religious uh, legal issues. Um, and I think our communities are, are beautifully served in that way. Um, but it is still very much a, a controversial issue uh, in, in the larger community. So once again, this has been Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We've been listening to a conversation between Rabbi Ori Topolowski, the spiritual leader of Keilat Pardes, and Father Viktor Potapov, rector of the Russian Orthodox Cathedral of St. John the Baptist. Gentlemen, before we uh, we wrap up here, I'm, I'm curious, this has been a wonderful conversation and, and great to find all these uh, areas of common interest and um, uh, common ground. I'm curious... If, if each of you have a, sort of a quick reflection, what is something that um, you wish people knew about your community that maybe they misunderstand? Something that we can help our listeners, you know, if there's just sort of one salient point we can leave them with um, about uh, each of your traditions. Well, uh, uh, first of all, we welcome all 
all visitors. I mean, everyone can come and visit and, and share in our liturgical experience, uh, view the iconography. Every square inch of the, our cathedral is painted with beautiful murals executed in the uh, 17th century Moscow style, as is the church architecture. And uh, we open our doors every Sunday, every Saturday evening, but on uh, particularly the first weekend of October, we have a, 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 a bazaar, a festival, where we show the church, we explain our faith, and we serve ethnic food, uh, play instruments outside the <laughs> church, and, and, and dance. We have beautiful dance groups come. And uh, it's a wonderful experience which attracts thousands and thousands of people. And I, I would strongly encourage folks to come. And uh, the money we raise goes to benevolence. I mean, we, we help the local poor. We're in D.C. We're three miles north of the White House. And, um, of course, we have a lot of pe homeless people who come on a regular basis, and we reach out to them, and we, we try to help as much as possible. <laughs> At the present time, of course, some of our own people are suffering because mm -hmm. of the furlough, which mm -hmm. has been dragging on for more than a month, I think, now. But... Um, we love to share our, our, our faith, and I think the fact that we have so many converts is, is an indication that we are open to the community. So those of you who are listening, I hope you have ears to hear. Mm. Beautiful. Rabbi Ori? Um, well, first of all, I, I think it's really important. A lot of people, when they hear uh, Orthodox Jew, um, they immediately think of someone with long side curls and maybe a black hat and um, a fur hat, <laughs> uh, you know, a certain stereotyped image, and perhaps we all struggle in that way um, in, in religious circles. Um, and I would love our, our listeners to, to recognize and know that in the Orthodox community, just like in the larger Jewish community, just like in our larger faith community, um, there's quite a spectrum of Orthodox Jews. Um, modern Orthodox Jews identify very differently, have very different core values than uh, ultra-Orthodox or Hasidic Jews. Um, we learn from each other, and uh, there's a lot of shared values and ideas, but our communities look different and, um, and are, are part of uh, different communities. So that's one thing I, I wanted to share. And, um, and I guess I, I, uh, I really uh, found this to be a lovely conversation, and um, I think whenever we sit, we, we realize that we have a lot in, in common, a lot to learn from each other. Um, there's a, an old saying that you, um, when you sit with someone else, are you just sitting? It's, we're here with two microphones in a studio, so sometimes you're just waiting so that you can speak. Um, uh, or are you actually listening to somebody else? And I think, especially in our political climate right now, but in our world in general, uh, learning how to truly listen rather than just waiting to talk, um, you know, would benefit us all. Absolutely. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. This has been a, a beautiful conversation. Thank you both for being part of our show today. Dear listeners, I want to share that we have a, a very exciting announcement that this Saturday, January 26th at American University, we'll be putting on our first ever live show of Interfaith-ish. It's free and open to the public, so come out and be part of our live audience and give us all some of your good energy. The recording is going to be part of the program at the DC Interfaith Leadership Summit, the only multi-faith conference for young leaders in the DMV area. This annual event draws participants from a variety of religious, ethical, and cultural traditions dedicated to building newer and stronger relationships with each other and their communities. And the summit program runs from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., and our recording will be from 12 
to 2 p.m. And it'll be in the K Spiritual Life Center at American University. That's again Saturday, January 26th, and you can find complete information at ifcmw.org or simply search online for DC Interfaith Summit. Dear listeners, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my terrific guest, Father Viktor Potapov, the rector of the Russian Orthodox Cathedral of St. John the Baptist, and Rabbi Uri Topolovsky, the spiritual leader at Keilat Pardes, the Rock Creek Synagogue. As always, a shout-out to my Interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, and of course to Jeff Philosopher for providing our theme music for the show. You can catch him at our live show as well. He'll be performing a short set as part of our program. And thank you, dear listeners, for spending your hour with us. You can find all our previous episodes of Interfaith-ish on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Remember to subscribe, leave a rating or a review, and send us an email about the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com, I-N-T-E-R, F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org.